episode of uh, Views from Down Under. I am your host, Alex Tan, and here with me today are our regular panelists, uh, Nick Ku, June Espia, Orson Tan, and Neil Van Vary. Today, we will chat about two news items that caught our attention in from the past two weeks. The first is the report about <coughs> Chinese Coast Guards shooting water cannons uh, at Philippine Coast Guard ships. Uh, resupplying a Philippine quote-unquote outpost in the South China Sea, and within, uh, but I believe that that uh, outpost quote-unquote is within Philippine EEZ. Uh, the second news that caught our attention is the third criminal indictment of former U.S. President Donald Trump for his role in the January 6th, uh, 2021 Capitol attack. So for us, what are the implications of uh, U.S. domestic politics in our region? And of course, the, the more recent news about uh, from Reuters that uh, President Biden will be missing the ASEAN summit in September. So we're going to chat a little bit about <coughs> all those issues. So going to that first topic of the quote-unquote confrontation between uh, Chinese Coast Guard vessels and uh, Philippine Coast Guard, uh, June, why don't you uh, chat to us a little bit briefly about uh, what this is all about? Thanks. And then all of us can uh, jump in. Thanks, Alex. And then good on you to use the quote-unquote on the Philippine outpost because it really shows you the precarity of the Philippine position in that area. BRP Sierra Madre, which was a landing ship for World War II, was uh, capsized essentially, was um, grounded essentially by the Philippines to serve as an outpost in an area because we haven't done pretty much in a sense to um, maintain a presence in there. And the use of water cannons, of course, by the Chinese Coast Guard against disputant states in the area is not new, having been part of China's playbook of tactics against other claimant states in the South China Sea since the re-escalation of the dispute in the 1990s. And from the Philippine perspective, it is a, a calculated aggression meant to enforce uh, what analysts would call a virtual blockade, meant to weaken the Philippines' position in the area. And the, the, the end goal from the Philippine view is that if this blockade of the resupply missions to Sierra Madre is successful, then China will deprive the Philippines of its ability to have a presence in that area, and it will have both symbolic and practical repercussions as the other Philippine presence nearby, Pagasa Island, which is a municipality that was constituted in the 1990s, could be next. And of course, this is coming in at the heels of former President Duterte visiting his friend, President Xi, a couple of weeks ago. And this is, of course, coming in of, as an event that has caught the attention as well of Philippine ally, the United States, saying that, well, if China continues to do so, any attack on Philippine vessels, including its Coast Guard, will be deemed as an activation of the 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty between the Philippines and the United States. And of course, China uh, remains the Philippines' largest trading partner the largest source of both imports and exports, and its third uh, largest source of, of foreign investments. There is, of course, a, a, a bigger geopolitical and historical context 
to this beyond the bilateral relations between the Philippines and China. And if you think about this historically, from the collapse of Imperial China to the Second World War, to the Cold War, and the current era of strategic competition between China and the U.S., the South China Sea dispute, which there's water cannon incident, is a sub-event, has evolved to take on security, economic, and, and, and legal dimensions. And I think our listeners would be curious about you know, what makes the South China Sea, where this incident happened, uh, an important and at the same time contentious body of water? Well, 12% of the world's total fish catch comes from this one area alone. A third of all global maritime trade, around 4 trillion US dollars or so, goes through the South China Sea. The 40% of the known natural gas, liquefied natural gas deposits comes from this area. China, of course, is one of the heavier users of these areas for, for trade. And so um, this area is of vast water and small <laughs> land features, 250 in all, and are grouped into six major groupings. Three of the groupings, the Parcel Islands, the Scarborough Shoal, and the Pratas Islands are controlled by China. And of course, we already know this. The entire area is claimed by China through its uh, quite ambitious nine-dash line, and which was, of course, um, rendered by the permanent court arbitration in uh, 2016 as, as illegal, having no historical basis for that claim. So this so is... So is this a, the first time that uh, that water cannons have been <laughs> shot at Philippine Coast Guard vessels? Oh, not at all. Not at all. Um According to uh, records by the Philippine Coast Guard, since the 1990s, this would be eighth or ninth water cannoning, not to count the ramming incidents and the use of laser targeting systems <laughs> against smaller Philippine vessels, both uh, resupply vessels, which are civilian, and then Coast Guard vessels of the Philippine Coast Guard. Hmm, that's really interesting in a uh, in in a way because I'm kind of curious about now that the United States have the enhanced and, and the Philippines have these uh, EDCA right yes. uh, enhanced defense cooperation agreement. I wonder what the implications of these type of uh, quote unquote skirmishes are to American commitment to the Philippines, for example, uh, with regards to security wise. Right. So I understand that the Philippines is really keen to focus that EDCA much more on the West Philippine Sea or the South China Sea, as it is called. So, I, I, you know, it's really quite interesting to see that the, the spot, you know, with the with the signing of that EDCA, China is still quite aggressive with regards to its um, its uh, actions uh, near Philippine waters. Yeah, uh, you know, my general sense of it is that this incident when. Would you take into account the increased U.S. presence in the Philippines and around the area makes everything else so volatile? And, and the reason for that is if you think about the new EDCA sites, there are nine of them. All eight of them are facing the, the, that area, the South China Sea and, and Taiwan up the north. Only one is in the middle of the Philippines uh, in Cebu, which I understand is for strate strategic lift capabilities because that's one other airport that's capable of uh, you know, uh, hosting the, the strategic lift capabilities of the U.S. But everything else is so focused on monitoring that maritime domain of, of, of the Philippines. And because of this incident, actually, at the end of the year, 
there is a planned set of joint patrol operations between uh, United States assets, we don't know yet if they're Gray Hall or White Hall, and Philippine Coast Guard assets. And of course, if you're China, and if you see United States vessels patrolling the disputed area, that would come off as quite aggressive to you as well. So I think mm. that overall, we there, there is an escalation certainly of, of yeah, the yeah. dispute as a result of yeah. this, this incident. Yeah, guys. Yeah, can I just pop in here and yeah. just say that this is, um, to me at least, uh, it has wider implications in the sense that this is sending a signal to the United States that the moment a regional state or ally such as the Philippines tightens its relations with the United States, the China is going to test the commitment of both the regional state and the United States. And this should be seen in the context of the United States trying to actually push back against Chinese policy in the region. And so therefore, it's the kind of natural um, coercive diplomacy angle, which, as we know, has increasingly become a feature of the region's international politics. Yeah. And in that respect, um, it's not surprising that this should occur. It's just a matter of time. Uh, and just stepping back, so that's one aspect to it, you know, the, the signaling part. Uh, and the, the second aspect to all of this, the way I look at it, is that um, in a way, the South China Sea can be viewed as a um, buffer zone. It's a maritime buffer zone. And in that respect, there's really three layers or sections, however one chooses to look at it. On one hand, you've got the PRC exclusive economic zone. That's one dimension. And then moving out from the edge of the PRC EEZ zone, you know, throughout the international water section, that's the second uh, aspect of the buffer zone. And then the third aspect would be the Filipino uh, EEZ. And now yep. we're seeing that the Chinese are challenging, well, have been for a long time, really, challenging the and accessing the Filipino EEZ, just like they did with the Vietnamese EEZ in 2014. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so this is where uh, regional states can have legitimate concerns about Chinese foreign policy, uh, that the Chinese are actually now you know, really going, a feeling at, at being able at random to challenge uh, in response to, to strategic developments, uh, other states' sovereignty, frankly. Yeah. Now, in, in, a, in a broader perspective, um, this just stays into America's hands because it just goes to show to the regional states, that, look, the Chinese do not respect international law uh, and they're willing to you know, exercise coercive diplomacy against regional states. And in that respect, viewed from the kind of more decade-long perspective, this is playing into the United States' hands that the, the Chinese are actually um, quite aggressive. Yeah, there seems to be quite a bit of tit-for-tat there as well, right? I mean, when you think about uh, the reaction that China had, uh, particularly with this incident, this most recent incident, it almost seems like it's a uh, a reaction to the EDCA uh, uh, that the yeah. Philippines signed with uh, the United States. It's a reaction towards Marcus uh, uh, Marcus Jr., uh, President Mar uh, Ferdinand Marcus Jr., uh, a shifting a little bit away from Duterte's, uh, President Duterte's much more China-friendly policy. And, you know, more recently, uh, 
the a news uh, I think the president uh, President Bongbong Marcus was quoted as saying that whatever the Philippine does on the security is Philippines business is no other people's business right so so claiming that much more so by doing that and then you see China kind of reminding you that hey we're here we can push you you know uh, is uh, is really as you say it's a gunboat coercive diplomacy. And it seems like this is becoming more common. You know, I mean, it's very obvious with the with what happened many years ago in uh, with the Vietnamese ships, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. the cutting of these cables and 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 what have you, it's really quite coercive, mm-hmm. guys. And, and if I might just uh, just brief interjection before the guys get into this, um, it should be noted because we we are you know in New Zealand that New Zealand just slightly more than a week ago came out with a the first ever national security strategy, mm. which had a much more clear stance in respect to uh, Chinese foreign policy, saying that really, in effect, the Chinese are the ones who are causing regional instability. And this event will just underline the uh, wisdom of this uh, understanding of, of Chinese foreign policy and the regional uh, strategic environment. So for yeah. New Zealand... This, you know, if ever we needed evidence that, you know, we were, were moving to a territory where we are correctly assessing the regional trends, this is affirmation of this. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Right. Um, I'd like to, that Alex was right in pointing out that, you know, um, this in fact is escalating the tensions. But if you look at how the dispute starts, uh, going back to the tail end of the Qing dynasty, China has had employed in the last century just two kinds of tactics. A is to delay and drag on the negotiations and whatever multilateral solution there is, including the code of conduct, which you know uh, next week, a couple of weeks from now, they're meeting in Manila for. And the second one is that when it feels its position being weakened, then it escalates the tension. And we see through major escalations historically on this 74 with Vietnam and then 88 with the Gulf of, 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 of Tonkin conflict. And the other thing, the other interesting thing that Nick said is that, you know, China does come across as, you know, really is a violator here of international law, international norms. And the irony of all of this is, in fact, China is a party to the UNCLOS. It became a party in 1996. And in fact, it's one of the biggest promoters of, of the EEZ, the 200 nautic mile EEZ. And then yeah, they realized yeah. towards the end of the negotiation that once they looked at that U-shaped ambitious nine-dash line, they realized that it's not going to be to China's interest. But too late. They have ratified the uh, UNCLOS 3 in 1996. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's an irony, though, because I think what this whole incident reinforces for us is how complex this idea of a rising China is. Because China, China treats the South China Sea as its backyard the same way that, you know, the United States treats Latin America, the Caribbean, part of the Monroe Doctrine, right? But, and and China sees itself as that regional hegemon that as it as it grows and is now trying to to assume its rightful place. Therefore, it should be able to to ensure its security and its stability by also having its own version of the Monroe Doctrine, its own backyard. But the problem for China is that, you know, they don't have the weak neighbours that America has in Latin America. They can't interfere in, in, in and assassinate, you know, they don't have a CIA that's going to assassinate the, 
or try to assassinate the Cuban <laughs> Cuban president and that kind of thing. You know, so so it's 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 a really complex thing. China wants to assume its place as a regional hegemon, and there are so many obstacles currently in its way. Mm. Well, but, well, yeah, but there's an there's an additional sorry sorry Neil, oh, uh, there's sorry, an additional uh, interesting dimension there too, though that uh, the fact that if we compare. Uh, you know, America's uh, uh, zone of influence in the Caribbean, let us say, mm. uh, you, you don't have an equivalent of a nine-dash line, <laughs> you know, yeah. we're, in, we're, in, uh, we're in the United States is saying that the territories within these, these bay or these sea, Caribbean Sea, is my territory. Uh, I think what the Chinese are trying to exert, which, which is quite difficult for many of the sovereign states of Southeast Asia, is just that its claim of the nine dash line literally cuts into many countries exclusive economic zones mm -hmm. and and the fact that the fact that when this uh when the chinese coast guard ship was water cannoning the philippine coast guard ship trying to re resupply uh the grounded sierra madre landing craft uh <laughs> even that landing craft is still within philippine eez uh so so you are you are seeing coast guard ships op chinese coast guard ships operating in philippine waters uh, you know which is which is very uncomfortable if you think about it and and needless to say you know going forward if we if we just infer that whole thing to you know maybe this is too much of an analogy but let me let me think aloud this way imagine you know china always follows its fishing vessel uh its uh fishing vessels big f uh, uh, fishing factory, so to speak, and supporting yeah. it with their Coast Guard. If we extend this forward to the to the Pacific <laughs> Island countries in the future, what if they have a base, an access in Vanuatu or in Solomon Islands, wherein Chinese fishing factories are based in having access mm. in these islands, right? And then yeah. they're going to say, all right, then we are going to support our fishing vessels with Coast Guards, you know, with our own Coast Guard. So is China going to be operating their Coast Guard way out of their yeah. normal, quote unquote, exclusive economic zones? That's the, that, I think that's the prospect that we, when we think of it from this region, and when I try to infer what's happening in South China Sea, particularly <laughs> what's happening to the Philippines, I'm, I'm much more concerned about the economic security threat to the region because that that fishing vessel will follow Whitehall. You know, the next step is Whitehall ships coming in. And, you know, from Whitehall to Greyhall, that becomes really, you know, a fine line already, right? So when you have military-type ships operating in our region, I think we will be justifiably worried. And I think the security document that was just recently released by, by New Zealand alludes to a little bit of that, right? Yeah, because right, I, right. I, I think you're going to find moving forward that... I say I mean, you're gonna find moving forward that the region that we are in is not gonna look the same the way or not gonna look the way it is now by the time the Chinese start selling sending the White House ships here, you know? Yeah. They are I not gonna so. have the same freedom of navigation that they, they enjoy or they, they seem to enjoy in, in the South China Sea because currently yeah. right now Australia is is all hands on deck trying to respond to this threat. They sign on to AUKUS. You know, uh, New Zealand has has openly flirted with this idea of uh, uh, pillar two and and the idea of building up their own 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 defense system to better better protect their their the region and defend their interests. You know, it's 
the precedent the precedence has been set in the South China Sea and what China has done is basically shown its hand. Yeah, yeah. Neil, you were about to say something, unfortunately. I cut you off. Oh, that's Sorry. all right. Uh, j- just a couple of points. I think um, you just to pick up from where Orson left, that China's you know, shown its hand in a way. It reminds me of a piece that Professor Tan and I recently wrote, which was, which was talking about the Pottery Barn Rule. You know, you, you, you break it, you, you own it. You know, this, this just encapsulates that, that narrative of China's peaceful rise, that bubble is perfectly best. You know, that, that phase is, 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 is over. And on the point of the coercive diplomacy, I think it goes beyond the South China Sea. Because not, not that long ago, three years ago, when the border conflict with India escalated, quite a few observers were of the perception that that was also perhaps a response to India getting more closer to the U.S. The the the, the, the Quad 2.0 was just revived. There was a lot of, there, there was a lot of bilateral and multilateral engagement between India and the U.S. And then out comes this border conflict. Um, and on the point of economic resources, I think I think Professor Tan is right that you know that, that that's certainly a critical question here. But just thinking <laughs> out loud at the back of my mind, you know we've seen the U.S. and its allies go through these freedom of, these freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea constantly for quite a few years. But that the, at the end of the day, it still hasn't resolved those economic disputes. Filipino fishermen are still unable to fish in their own EZ, despite That's right. uh, all these phone-off exercises. So that was just one of the points there. And then um, in terms of escalation, also what was going on to the back of my mind is, is uh, something I read very recently, which was from um, a former U.S. admiral who said that, well... Given that there are a lot of military assets already in the South China Sea, the prospect of the U.S. or, for that matter, any other player just stumbling into a conflict on account of a close call um, shouldn't also be discounted. Uh, it was only very recently that the U.S. So, sorry, that Chi- um, a Vietnamese and a Chinese vessel came within uh, ten meters of each other, uh, and we've yeah. heard we've heard similar close calls between U.S. and Chinese ships as well. I think the, the next question I would have is that what does it mean for ASEAN? Because Philippines mm. is obviously going to feel like ASEAN's basically abandoned them on this issue. You know, Cambodia, mm. Laos, Myanmar, they're not going to support any any, resu- mm. any resolution on, on the South China Sea issue which harms the interests of China itself. Mm. But Philippines is, you know, does that push them to a point where the next election is in what? 2028. 2028. And you have a populist leader who says, you know, I'm gonna invite the US to fully invest in in, in Philippine the Philippines Navy and 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 co- co- cooperate with us with building bases and everything and be uh, American yeah. outpost because at the end of the day, it's my economic growth and my economic development that's being affected. Now, just to, to to respond to that point, I think first it needs to be said that in the larger context of the dispute, China is not the sole provoker here. You know, in fact, you know, ASEAN states themselves have bilateral <coughs> disputes yep. over various yep. South China Sea claims, which makes this all the more complicated. And while China is the biggest builder of artificial islands, it's not alone. The Philippines has built its airstrip, Malaysia and Swallow Reef, Vietnam and various islands, Ta- uh, Taiwan, yep. of course, in Ituama yeah. and all that. So um, uh, historically, how the ASEAN has wanted to go about this really is multilateral. And China really, in multilateral discussions of the issue, has really dragged its feet. And that's why people are doubtful whether the code of conduct was going to materialize late uh, 2022. And lo and behold, it did not. You know, it's, it's one year late in the coming. But the other interesting development, though, with ASEAN is that 
Next next month in September finally there's going to be naval drill mm-hmm. and whose location we know was 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 moved at the behest of, of Cambodia, Cambodia having yeah. disagreed with it. Now, the to me the beauty of an ASEAN naval exercise in the South China Sea is that if it's properly designed and implemented, then it is an opportunity that ASEAN should not miss because it's an opportunity to assert what it calls its centrality in this issue. Mm-hmm. Because I'd like to think that you know it's hard for China to retaliate on the entire group, which it is also is actively engaging. And so the way to to to, to do this probably is that. A, the naval drill should be ASEAN only, as to be not so provocative. Okay. And 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 Jokowi has said something interesting about this: that there's a naval drill, but the military <laughs> element should be downplayed so that it's more interdiction, it's more humanitarian relief, and interdiction anyway would deal with poachers yeah. and all these other violators yeah. and transnational crimes, which are. Sadly, mostly that of from 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 China. Yeah, and so this is an opportunity I think that <coughs> ASEAN should should not miss doing next month. I, I think I think yeah, you you guys are right. And and speaking of ASEAN and how ASEAN is going to react, and we all know uh, that China also knows that ASEAN uh, can be played off against each other. Mm-hmm. You know, with with regards to players are concerned. So so this is. Uh, in my view, you know uh, how ASEAN goes about it has will will kind of determine the future of the organization and the, the, yeah. the effectiveness of the organization going forward. Because if it cannot deal with this problem that is right there uh, in its front yard, so to speak, then then the organization will have to uh, reflect on its own. Uh, centrality, so to speak, right? I mean, so ASEAN yeah. insists, insists on ASEAN centrality, but this is a core issue. Yeah, Al- Alex. Many major members. Excellent point. I mean, one of the myths in in Asian IR or Indo-Pacific IR is this myth of ASEAN centrality, because everyone <laughs> talks about ASEAN centrality, uh, but uh, when it come, push comes to shove, uh, where is ASEAN? There is no cohesion as an organization, so they get played off by, for example, China you know, on a number of cases. And then when China violates uh, you know, most of these principles, uh, what happens in the case of uh, the Philippines uh, and Duterte in 2016, uh, really ASEAN is not backing up the Philippines. That's right, that's right. And so, you know, it doesn't take much to, to then say that or observe that this whole issue of ASEAN as the central factor in the region really doesn't, you know, make a lot of sense uh, when push comes to shove. And then the second point is there's another myth, which is this myth of uh, regional states' respect for sovereignty, and in particular China. China is the biggest advocate for regional sovereignty, but it seems like it's only when it involves its own sovereignty that, you know, it stands up for the principle, but when when it's violating other states' sovereignty, then this is then, then, yeah, you know, <laughs> this is uh, bringing the principle into disrepute, right? Yeah. And and this is not even the first time. Mm. Um, you know, as we know, China and and Russia uh, have a very close relationship, and in particular, uh, even during this era when uh, the Russians have gone into Ukraine and violated Ukrainian sovereignty. And the Chinese are not backing the Ukrainians. So again, this is not the first time the Chinese have 
claim to be respecting uh, principle of sovereignty, but when push comes to shove, they turn a blind eye. Yeah, that's right. And 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 in in a way, uh, Nick, uh, you're talking about busting myth bust myth busting. <laughs> seems like our pod, our podcast program seems to be busting a lot of myths lately. So, uh, <laughs> so, but but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, we'll we, we'll move on to the next topic. But I just want to talk about the that that when we when we see what's happening in the region, and I think from us sitting down under right here, right? Uh, I think we have been saying quite a while that we need. We here in New Zealand should be very, very keen observers of what's happening up in Northeast Asia, up in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. For me, my view always is, is that they provide a very good uh, uh, early warning indicator for us because these guys, the countries over there have dealt with China. Uh, China's really right there in your face, so to speak. They have seen China's hard power. They have seen China's soft power. They have seen China's offensive charm and they have you know uh, uh and 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 china's charm offensive so to speak right so so in a way to me being a, being a very very good observer of that place being with our eyes focused on that region will help us understand how we will need to react yeah. going forward so so i know yes uh, we have the benefit of geography because we're very far but at the same time uh, it does give us time to observe what's happening over there so that we can craft a proper policy uh, yeah. as China continues to expand or other powers that may be that continues to affect our uh, geopolitical security and uh, geoeconomic security, mm-hmm. so to speak. So uh, I want to you know, move to this next topic, which I think is very, very important. We have not really spoken a lot about domestic politics in the United States. But I think this time around with this uh, third uh, indictment of uh, former President Donald Trump on his role on the Capitol attack, and at the same time, the fact that he is still the Republican frontrunner for this upcoming election is signaling some some things to us over here in our region, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Remember, guys, when Donald Trump became president in 2017 and everything that transpired in his it is in his administration there was concern uh, in the region of the reliability of America's commitment to the region yep. uh, whether they will continue to pay attention to the region and then with Biden coming in uh, President Biden has uh, actually focused quite a lot on the region right yep. so uh, in a lot of initiatives uh, and but there's also a lot of tension still in the region, so you know what do you guys see it? I mean, how do you guys see it? We're not gonna we're not wading into American domestic politics as such, but it's really more of what are the implications for us over here with what's happening over there. First, the message that America is we are the we are a democracy, so mm-hmm. we are standing for democracy. We're in at the very core itself, America. The tumor within the American body politic is probably growing mm-hmm. and, 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 and actually threatening its own democracy, so to speak. And then, of course, its attention and commitment to the region, the Asia-Pacific region and the Indo-Pacific region. So, guys, what do you, how do you guys see that? Yeah, so the thing with this whole idea of uh, Trump being indicted and, and 
for especially for the charges of you know defrauding the United States and everything, is that it it sends that wrong signal, right? If United the the US keeps insisting that they are the leader of the free world, they have liberal democratic values, and these liberal democratic values are worth having, then why does your domestic politics look like a mess? Why why has the evolution of your your political system gotten to a point where you are so polarized? You allow a uh, a cheat, a liar like you know Donald Trump to to become not only become president but you know stay at stay as the front runner of of one of the two major parties, and 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 that message that it sends to the region, especially in Indo Pacific, where you have countries that are already dubious about not just liberal democracy but dubious about Western values, make, means that it's giving. China a bit more leeway in, in, in its message that, you know, we need to band together, the West is declining, and all that. You know, so that's, that's what I, I feel that the, the thing with Trump's indictment and the, the stories coming out of the United States, that it's a really bad look for them, just as they're trying to reassert their, their position as a, as a potential leader and a potential somebody who can, can, can guide the way the events in the Indo-Pacific will happen. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think it's certainly. Think, I think Orson, you picked up on that values part, right? Yeah. The value story that that it's uh, discounting the value story that uh, that the United States wants to present to our region. Neil, you want to say something, and then I'll move to Nick. Oh, just Neil? the same point that it does raise the question of credibility. You know, when when your own democracy is in turmoil, how are you then? How are how are you then going to go and t- talk to democracy about others? And we've seen the Biden administration do that. Democracy versus autocracy. You know, va- very value laden approach to foreign policy, and the consequence I suspect to a certain degree is that it makes China and China's model more credible because. Where are the U.S. values at home today? How 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 important how how well are they doing? Um, and that creates a bit of uncertainty, I think, on on the values aspect, certainly. Nick, go ahead. Yeah, and just to zoom out a little bit and look at U.S. foreign policy over the last few decades. Since 1975, when U.S. basically conceded defeat in the Vietnam War, from 1975 through to uh, 2023. What you can actually observe as a general statement is a, a, a gradual decline in the U.S. position in the region, f- f- in effect from a, from a situation where it was unchallenged in, in the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific, as it used to be known, all the way through to the present time when actually the Chinese are now contesting U.S. power in the region. So it's, it signals a move from a in effect, a unipolar type situation for U.S. power in East Asia, all the way through to a now, in 2023, a bipolar international situation. And you can see the actual turning points, 1975, U.S. pullout of Vietnam, 1991, retrenchment in in the Asia Pacific, Mm -hmm. through to 2028, where after the global financial crisis, we do, the the United States did the TPP, but couldn't follow through. So from the long-term perspective, this symbolizes a retreat in U.S. power to a point where it's now sharing power with uh, the PRC in, in the region. Yeah, that is really quite a something that for us, when we're looking at the United States and what's happening over there, that's the concern, right? I mean, that are we seeing a gradual retrenchment of American 
quote unquote attention to the region, right? Yeah. So, and the re and at the moment, uh, since the Trump administration uh, and then the continuance of many of the policies, and in fact the ratcheting up by the Biden administration has pretty much focused on, in my personal view, much more unidimensional. Mm -hmm. And the focus of that has always been on the military hard power part. And, and you, you were, uh, Nick, you were alluding to the fact that they withdrew from TPP. Uh, they're slowly withdrawing from all their other commitments and trying to replace this uh, with the Indo-Pacific economic framework, that's not really quite the same. So, so you know, with the, if let's say in 2024 the United States elect Trumps again, will they pull out of an IPEF? You know, will they pull out of IPEF or any commitment? Uh, will that much more neo-isolationist streak that that uh, Trump is currently signaling and the Republican uh, House of Representatives right is signaling with regards to even its support of Ukraine, right? So mm -hmm. it's, these are something that we we over here in the region are actually looking at and observing and kind of we have to prepare. Mm -hmm. So you can see how, in my view, how our foreign policymakers in the region are trying to play it safe as well to kind of to, yeah. to kind of see that, all right, what if this really happens? What if this scenario really happens? And, so, and even, even if I may just add, even if Trump doesn't, uh, secure the uh, the presidency. His effect on U.S. policy in the region uh, is actually uh, quite damaging because it doesn't allow for the type of, for example, bilateral agreements, trade agreements between U.S. and New Zealand, yep. which will significantly boost U.S. credibility in the region. That's right. That's right. And I think that 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 is the big problem, right? Because America right now is faced with number one, we have extreme polarization political polarization. Number two, you have negative partisanship, yep. right? You have divided government, uh, and we're in the budgetary authority is being controlled by the other political party that doesn't see eye to eye on many domestic issues with mm -hmm. you. So eventually, you know, it's going to, these budgetary authority is going to affect American foreign policy commitments, right? So so how are, if, if the Republicans control uh, again, in this next election, the the Congress, the lower house, you know, the likelihood of pulling the plug on Ukraine is very, very real, right? And then you, you we've seen all these reports about uh, there is a bit of a concern that Americans are now fifty five percent of Americans said that they should pull the plug on Ukraine, right? And 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 that is not a good sign. Of course, the Republicans more so than the Democrats, but long term commitment and. And Ukraine is very far from us. But what's happening in the region for us is how America will commit to us, to commit to this region and maintaining, uh, you know, the international rules-based uh, rules international order in this region is uh, very real for us. And I, I think that's the thing that hasn't been pointed out, right? You, you keep saying that it's very real for us, but who is the us? Because the stakes are very different for the individual states in the region as to, True. you know, True. American involvement. The people who stand the most to lose is obviously Australia and New Zealand, you know, because the, you know, because we are part of the five eyes, uh, you know, Australia is part of AUKUS. If, if America is not fully committed and not fully involved in the Indo-Pacific, we are the, we, we, we've basically, you know, if we are using, going back to the poker analogy, we've, we've, we've gone in 
big blind, small blind, we've raised and raised and, and we, are, we are in it. And then, you know, the other, the other states that, that might be affected, really, Singapore, which has, a, you know, America's their, their biggest de defense supplier. You know, Singapore counts on, on American presence in the region to sort of balance that whole power dynamic so that there's regional stability. And it, it, allow, it carves out that, that autonomous region for a small state to, to operate. You know, you have but I think I will go further, though. I think I would add, I would add uh, uh, South Korea's yep. uh, uh, concern. You know, because you know, under President Yoon, you can see that very significant shift away from from a much more China-friendly position to you know South Korea. You know, patching up, you know, uh, its relation with Japan, being much more supportive of American positioning here, and of course, you know, the the Quad members. Uh, Particularly Japan, yeah, right? I was going mean, to say Japan, Japan. Yeah, yeah, Japan. Japan definitely w is not only concerned about China, but concerned about North Korea. North Korea, right? And its effect on on its own national security issues. So you can see, you know, speaking of our previous topic, I, if I recall correctly, I read uh, something about these Japan uh, likely participating in these uh, patrols yep. uh, in the South China Sea with Australia. Uh, Philippines and you know, on a Coast Guard basis, right? So you can see that they are very concerned. And because if America does pull out in, in a way, let's just say pulling out probably is a strong word, but lesser attention of America in the region would mean to say that what would mean to say that the the other countries would need to contribute more, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and at a time wherein everybody's budget is pinched, uh many Many Southeast Asia states uh, do not have enough assets. New Zealand, you know, yes. we don't have enough assets to commit. And we definitely cannot just see America pull out completely because then you have a gaping hole, right? And, a gaping hole in security. And when there's a hole, somebody's going to plug it. Mm. And suddenly it's 2001 all over again, where, you know, you know, the United States is so focused elsewhere, it's just forgotten that it is in the Indo-Pacific with so much of the energy focused on Iraq, Afghanistan, and the anti-terror campaign. Mm -hmm. It would not be the first time, I'd say. But this time, I think the ramifications for the United States and the region would be much worse now that you're faced with a much more assertive and much more powerful China. And But but to, to segue in a point made by, by Alex earlier, that it's not just the Republicans, but also the Democrats. And... It also, to me, speaks about two uh, recent incidents where you know Biden has failed to show up yeah. to yeah. major mm -hmm. engagements in the region. Now that is a major message. Whatever the reasoning is, may it be budget debates in Congress or his personal health issues. I think that in the next short midterm, if America refuses to walk the talk where Asia, the end of Pacific is a keystone with a strategy in the area, then, you know, I think pretty much the decline, the thesis that America is in decline really would hold much more water. It almost seems yeah, to I mean, me this September, this September, uh, like Biden likely missing the September summit of ASEAN, yep, right? So yep. that's another site. And Neil? Oh, it almost seems to me that America's commitment seems to be a bit selective. I mean, we've been hearing about the idea of the US pivot to Asia since Obama's times. He, he used that phrase. We saw that it took a while for America to show its full, to show its commitment to the region 
enhanced under the Biden administration up to until this point. But some would argue that part of having a strong commitment is to is to show up in the first place, and and we can see that with President Biden's absence in a way. Uh, on the Trump question, I think the region perhaps is, will be slightly weary, I suspect, if a Trump presidency, on account certainly of some of the more neo-isolationist and economic nationalist views that Trump yeah. has espoused in the past. Yes, we've got the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework after America pulled out of the CPTPP, but that never has involved market access anyway. You know, So on one hand, America wants to talk to its allies in the region about de-risking. Yet, on the other hand, practical options for de-risking are still very limited, and I dare say will be even more limited should either there be a Trump presidency or indeed the effect of Trump's ideology, certainly beyond just himself. You can see that the, the streak of economic nationalism and inward-looking tendencies in Republicans across the board. Um, so I suspect the region would be slightly wary of that. I think I think we are we are we are giving too much credence to this whole idea of a Trump presidency and the impact of Trump and all that. I think the the biggest thing is that the line in the sand has been drawn. You know, American like the Indo-Pacific states have 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 really signaled to Amer- America where it needs to show up and walk walk the talk. You know, and if it doesn't, yeah. that's it. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. who whether it's the Democrat or Republican or whoever it is in in in, in government. In terms of foreign policy, the line in the sand has been drawn. This is where we need we need you to meet us, and if you don't meet us there, we'll pivot. Yeah. And I think the, the the thing is, it's not just about Trump. Actually, you know, it's more of this idea of Trumpism, right? Mm. So yeah. Trump's Trumpism seems to permeate now towards American political narrative and lingo, right, amongst American political elites and certainly voters, right? So so it's not just the person of Trump, but so some of the ideas have already permeated through uh, American political thinking, so to speak. Nick? Yeah, at the same time, the dynamic is, I, I don't want to say complicated, but, uh, it, it, but a necessary in aspect of the discussion is that in this new bipolarity that's emerging between the Chinese and the Americans, there actually is arguably greater agency for regional states to yeah. play in their own security. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some may be allies of the United States, some may be partners, like, for example, Singapore. And, you know, allies in the, or, or partners in the region have always been asking for more agency. And now there is an opportunity for them to step up. So, for example, we've already seen this with the US-Australian uh, relationship. And similarly, for other bilateral relationships between the United States and regional states, uh, given the instability in American domestic politics, you know, regional states are just going to have to take their own security more seriously, including New Zealand. Yeah, well, I I totally agree with that, that, you know, each of us in the region has a role to play in our own collective security. Uh, The challenge is, is that because America does play, the United States does play a relatively more outsized role in the collective security of the region, uh, if they pull out cold turkey, that is very difficult, right? I mean, I don't think any of us will be able to step in just so fast uh, in order to deal with that. We know of an, a, a major actor in the region that has that capacity, but many, many countries in the region don't. And so so the question is, is how, how America, uh, you know, balance that, how does it balance the reality that 
the it's not how they say it, but it's how we hear it in the region, right? So, so I think they they really need to get that in order. Uh, certainly, how the domestic politics is being viewed externally and in our region. So we'll we'll see we'll see how it goes. And I it it kind of feels like next year going into the election year. Uh, we'll see a lot of these rhetoric coming in and, you know, there'll be a lot of things for us to talk about, certainly in the podcast. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, with hitting up the hour here, so I just want to kind of like end our discussion here. Um, this particular topic on the election, American domestic politics will come back again for us. Uh, it will be a very constant topic for us as we interpret what's happening there. Next year will be quite interesting because a lot of elections in the region Yep. Uh, Taiwan included as well. Uh, and so it'll be quite interesting for us to comment on what's, how domestic politics this time impacts on international relations. So this, the saying in the past that uh, uh, po- uh, politics do not goes, go over the water's edge is no longer <laughs> at play here. We do see these dual level, two level uh Politics were in domestic affects international, international affects domestic. Well, uh, I'll end our discussion here today. And thank you guys uh, for this wonderful chat. Uh, thank you again for listening and supporting us for our program. We hope you uh, con- you continue to listen to us and make sure you subscribe to our channel. Uh, and we are very, uh, we enjoy these chats a lot. And we want to, again, give our perspectives to the region Uh, of these international issues from us, from the region, and share our thoughts with you. Thank you, guys.